0: In the book of Jeremiah, there is a famous passage, which is a letter to the Jewish people who've been conquered and taken into exile by the King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The exile is one of the defining moments of the Old Testament because it's so very contrary to what should be happening. I mean, how exactly is it that God's chosen people get captured and sent into exile In the ancient world, the whole event would have been a very clear indication that the Babylonian gods were more powerful than Israel's. I mean, the evidence is all around you. We're slaves now. And this was, of course, incomprehensible for the Israelites, for whom a foundational aspect of their faith was the idea that their God was the God above all gods, the ruler of the whole world. And so there were people in Israel who were saying, no, resist, keep fighting. God will deliver you yet. And so in chapter 28 of Jeremiah, which is right before the letter that I'm going to read, a prophet named Hananiah tells the people that God will release them from exile within two years, that that God is going to save them. And this makes sense because if God is actually God, surely deliverance is coming soon, right? And yet... This letter from Jeremiah starts out with a bold declaration of God's power and then tells the Israelites that God is not going to deliver them, at least not anytime soon. This is Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in other words, the commander of legions of angels, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. It's not going to be two years or 10 or 20 You've got plenty of time, enough that you can plant trees and vineyards and not worry that you won't see their produce. Not only should you have kids, you should marry them off and enjoy the grandkids. In other words, settle in. It's going to be a while. I was looking up this passage in preparation for this sermon, and I noticed something interesting in a different book, a different prophet of the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. And this is Isaiah 65. And this is a passage written somewhere around the same time as the one from Jeremiah. But instead of looking at the present or at the near future, it's talking about the distant future, the day when God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth and when all crying and mourning will cease. And it says that in that day, they, the people of that time, will build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That's the dream, that when God makes everything right, we'll be able to settle down, And enjoy our gardens and our orchards safely. So, just to recap, Isaiah's vision of the new heaven and new earth at the end of time is they will build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Jeremiah's vision of how Israel ought to be while in exile in Babylon, maybe as far the opposite direction from paradise as you can imagine, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens. And eat their produce. In effect, live in exile exactly as you would in paradise. Isn't that interesting? There's always been groups, both in the Christian church and amongst the Jewish people, who see the world around them, the ways that it contrasts with the life that we are to live as followers of God, and say, I can't, I can't do this. I need to separate myself. I need to live in a community of people who are, who are serious about following God. That's the only way that I can follow God myself. Monasteries are the most obvious example of this, although not all take this approach to the world, to be sure. But in Jesus's day, there was also a group called the Essenes who were doing basically the same thing. And if you're a Bible nerd like me, you know of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were um, saved and compiled by the Essene community that had separated itself out from the rest of the Jewish people. But these passages from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, point us to a different truth that it is possible to live as if we were in paradise, even here, even now, even in the worst disaster imaginable of being exiled to Babylon, that in the every day of normal life, we can live the life God calls us to live. The book of Daniel is another part of the Old Testament set in roughly the same time as these words from Jeremiah and from Isaiah during the exile, and As the story goes in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar invites some of Jerusalem's best and brightest to be interns in his state department, if you will. And one of them, Daniel, made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Because these things were most definitely not kosher. They did not follow the food laws that were one of the kind of bedrock aspects of Israelite identity. And so, Daniel tells us, he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. And the book of Daniel continues to tell the story of Daniel and some of his friends who rise through the ranks of the Babylonian State Department. And I have to imagine, given their rise through the ranks, that they must have been pretty good at their jobs, that they were fully engaged in the jobs that they have been given serving an enemy nation. And yet they remain followers of God. Now, it's hard to wrap our minds around just how challenging this would have been in those days when government and religion and social life were all kind of mixed up in a way that they just aren't anymore. Not really. Daniel and his friends refuse to bow down to idols. They continue to pray to their God daily. And at some times it puts them in grave danger from which they are delivered. But the point is this, they don't try to balance their commitment to God and to their jobs. They are fully committed to their work and they remain at the same time, fully committed to following their God. They are fully a part of the world that they have been exiled to. And yet in some sense, they remain fully separate. I had a professor once named Will Willimon, and he was a bishop in Alabama for the United Methodist Church, and he had kind of this genteel Southern accent, and he kind of liked being a provocateur and stirring things up a bit, and and he said once to our class, he said, you know, I I, I hear all these talk about about balance these days, you know, about being balanced, work-life balance and that sort of thing, and well, I don't know, I just look at Scripture and the Bible, and and I don't see much balance there at all, you know, I, I look at Jesus, he he wasn't a balanced individual. He was more of an extremist, it seems to me. And then he'd kind of give this sly little grin and a little shrug, like, but what do I know, you know? And there's a certain degree where he's on purpose misrepresenting what people mean by by balance, of course. But he's trying to stir things up, and he's also kind of right. Jesus wasn't balanced. Paul was not balanced peter was most definitely not balanced daniel and his friends not really balanced we aren't called to be balanced in the sense of being in a nice easy middle of pulling back on our jesus following so as not to be too weird and and then pulling back from the world now and then so as not to defile ourselves and just trying to be in this nice unobjectionable middle keep everyone happy on all sides i think it's far more the case that like daniel like paul Like Jesus, who is, we believe, fully God and fully human, not half and half, not a little this or a little that, but fully both. That we, like all those examples from the Bible, are called to fully engage with the world around us, to throw ourselves fully into the jobs, friendships, social settings, challenges of the world that we find ourselves in, while also fully separating ourselves from that world in the sense that we are to be fully present, but differently present. We can be fully engaged with our jobs, but differently engaged, fully engaged as a parent, but differently maybe than the other moms and dads we see around us, fully engaged as a student, but at the same time differently than the other students because we're following Jesus all the while. I think of the time when the people were coming to John the Baptist saying, what do we need to do to be saved? And he says, basically, well, tax collectors, stop cheating people. Soldiers, stop abusing your power. Most of his answers in that passage boil down to that. Stop cheating people and stop abusing your power. I think we could go a long way on those two pieces of advice. Stop cheating people and don't abuse whatever amount of power you might have. But that can also be hard to do in reality. We're in a world where people cheat one another and abuse whatever little power they have left so as to hold on to whatever security they can. There's a logic to the world around us that is so easy to just slip into, to lose sight of the things we know are right because, well, everyone else around us is doing it this way. Jesus calls us to be fully engaged in our lives, the lives that God has given us to live, but to never lose sight of the fact that we are following Jesus into those lives, not just doing it on our own, not just doing it to get a paycheck or make it through the day, but to be representatives of Jesus all the while to the world in which we find ourselves. And this is more than just share Jesus with your coworkers or something like that. This is being kinder and honester and more selfless, more creative, more loving. I think of a time at Willow Creek, they have every year a large business and leadership conference called the Leadership Summit, or it was called the Leadership Summit at least. And there was one time a few years ago when the uh, speaker made a joke, an offhanded joke about how poorly run the Cleveland Browns football team were. And if you know anything about football, you know that that joke was 100% accurate that the Cleveland Browns are horribly run. <laughs> and it seems to come from the very top, from the from the owner's box, if you will. Well, the crowd laughed because enough of them knew what the Cleveland Browns were like. But then the next day, the speaker got back up on the stage and apologized for the joke that he had made at the Cleveland Browns owner expense because, as it turns out, the owner of the Cleveland Browns was in the audience and was a major donor to the Willow Creek Association. Apparently, the Cleveland Browns owner liked to portray himself as something of a Jesus follower, at least in his uh, giving habits and social circles. Now, this was kind of a funny moment at the leadership summit, but what was especially interesting, if I have the timeline on this right, was that I had just recently read an article about that same owner, or more accurately, about the company by which he had made all the money that allowed him to buy the Cleveland Browns. He was the owner of a uh, series of truck stops, and several of the executives from his company had just recently pled guilty to narrowly avoided jail time for a massive scandal where they had been defrauding their customers. And I remember thinking at the time how strange it was, not that someone had made a joke at the Cleveland Browns owner's expense and had then had to walk it back because rich people don't like being made fun of, but that this person whose business had defrauded his customers of millions and millions of dollars wanted to pretend like he was some sort of Jesus follower. As if you can separate out following Jesus in your private life from the way in which you do business. Now, this is kind of a large scale example, of course, but I think that there are smaller and closer to home ways that the same sort of thing plays out. That we just fall into the way that business is done, business as usual, without really investigating, without really thinking about to what degree the way that business just is done lines up with, or does not line up with our following of Jesus. It's easy to slip into the way things are done around us. Or on the other hand, to give in to the temptation to pull away from the world in order to make our following of Jesus easier. I think the one way that we can thread that needle, not to be balanced, but to fully engage with the world while also fully engaging with following Jesus. I think the one way we can do that consistently and sustainably is by being continually connected with Jesus. We need practices and habits that remind us of God's presence, that empower us to follow Jesus day by day, minute by minute, in whatever situation we find ourselves in our normal everyday lives. We at Pomona Valley Church have called those practices and habits a rhythm of life. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking a little closer at some of the practices that might help us stay attuned to and open to Jesus in our everyday lives. Tonight, to get things started, Meredith is going to lead us in a practice of experiencing and noticing the presence of God around us. Because by doing so, by getting in that habit, and by by engaging in that practice, it can make it so that we can fully engage in the world while still staying fully connected to God and to who God has called us to be. So Meredith is going to lead us in a practice right now.